the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. The party that has been raging in the container sector for the past two years is finally showing signs of fizzling out. Now, we're not quite at the last dance yet. This is going to take some time to wash through, and carrier investors can expect a few more quarters of good dividends yet. But there are signs that the extraordinary set of circumstances that has defined box shipping since early 2020 are starting to unwind. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to start talking to the box CEOs about what happens next and how they view the pretty fearsome set of challenges heading their way over the next few years. Jeremy Nixon is going to be a familiar voice to many podcast listeners. As the chief executive of Ocean Network Express, or ONE as it's known, he has steered the container sector's newest company through a pretty extraordinary five-year journey since its inception. And along with Hapag Lloyd's chief executive, Rolf Haben-Jansen, he co-chairs the container shipping lobby group, the World Shipping Council. So he's got a really firm grasp on the wider concerns that are going to define the sector over the next few years. A few weeks ago, I asked a tanker executive, Robert Bugby, a very similar set of questions, albeit from the perspective of a very different sector. But I started this week with the same question. What is it that's keeping Jeremy Nixon awake at night? Yeah, so I think, you know, you'd naturally expect any uh, senior executive or CEO of, of, of any logistics company to talk about uh, the cyclicality of the industry. And when markets are going up, that they're always very happy and their shareholders are happy. And when the markets are stabilizing or turning down, it's, it's not the case. And uh, there's more focus on you know, managing the performance of the company and the PNL, etc. But I think, you know, we've all been in the game a long, long time and we know markets are cyclical. And so what goes down comes up, what comes up goes down. And uh, so I wouldn't say that is really the key key area of concern. I think the area that keeps me up at night is, is obviously from a, a personal standpoint in terms of keeping the company moving forward uh, and continuing to evolve and develop. You know, we're five years old now. Uh, almost since we launched mm. and and keeping that move forward and keeping that fresh and keeping people motivated and whatever. I think the second one, though, is around the industry and the importance of container shipping as a sector. And I think, you know, we've obviously had a lot of challenges recently with, with global trade and with a lot of protectionism and uh, possibilities that the, the the global trading environment may be starting to change or break down. Um, and, and so I just hope that we can continue to impress upon governments that uh, global trade is critical to the global economy. It's important that we have shipping. It's important that we have uh, container shipping and that, uh, you know, anything that disturbs that um, could have profound impacts on on global trade patterns and, and, and on the economy. So we just need to steer through some of those political ructions and disparities we've got at the moment. I mean, the China-US thing, we've been living that now really full-blown for the last three years. At some point, you've got to hope that calms down because those are very significant trading blocks. We've got developments obviously going on in Europe, which are a concern. And we've got other areas or potential areas of friction and, and challenge, which, you know, that's what I hope we can get past and, and mm. we can somehow resolve. I think the area, though, that I would like to see some you know, on behalf of our customers is we, we we need to get back to supplying a good weekly schedule reliable product. Uh, we need to try and avoid huge fluctuations and volatility in freight rates. 
and we need to give better visibility to our customers in terms of where their freight is on the transportation journey and giving them exception management reporting. And those three areas to me are important that we do that as an industry. And certainly as O&E, we're very focused on that. And mm. that will provide you know, a better quality product, a more credible product, and will keep people still invested and interested in global supply chains. If we can't resolve those three items, we will inevitably see people pulling back and de-risking the supply chain and things will become more localized. And I don't think that's in the interests of the global economy or in the shipping industry. No. And these conversations are not new. We've obviously had variations on this conversation in every cycle. There seems to be dangerous talk of this time it's different as ever there is in, in container shipping. I mean, do you think it is different this time? Have we learnt the lessons of the past? Are we able to control the supply and demand better because we have learnt where the real problems are? Is there discipline enough in the market to do it better this time? Yes, yeah, so I think the jury's out on that at the industry level. And, you know, I I don't can't really pass comment for the whole industry. But what I can say mm. is, what are we doing about it as O&E? And what we're doing is, is you know, we, we were very careful during 221, 222. We didn't go out and order lots of, uh, didn't go out and build lots, uh, buy lots of secondhand ships like some of our competitors did. Mm. We inevitably saw there would be some correction in the future. Uh, we recognized that we were still... Uh, handicapped from our from our legacy days and that we didn't have some of the right tonnage types and the right tonnage sets um, so we have gone out on a on an ordering plan but what we try to do in the future is do that on a consistent basis every year so that instead of just trying to to guess when's the best time to build and, and when not to build we, we, we try and cost average it out across the life cycle and also de-risk some, somewhat on the technology side as well. Mm. So we're very focused on that. And we have built in contingencies that in the event that the market turns down and we have a very severe recession or something like that, that we know which assets we will offload first and how to do that so that we, we do have a plan B and we do have a plan C. And maybe in the past, you know, as an industry or individual carriers, we weren't very good at that. We we're all just working on, you know, the sunny days and plan A. Uh, but I think it's important that, uh, you know, as, as, as industry players with such large uh, fleets and assets now, we, we have to be able to respond to different market conditions and adapt quickly. I mean, on that subject of adaptation, you mentioned, you know, the potential for, you know, the move towards supply chain resilience to effectively invoke different uh, demand trends and you know nearshoring reshoring that's been talked about for years but it has been such a a, a cataclysmic um, series of events that is now not a shipping story it's a it's a macroeconomic story it's a political story it's a local domestic supply chain story and to that extent people are now looking at shipping and resilience and supply chains do you think as a result of the last few years that people will do things differently? Has there been a shift in terms of what is coming from your customers? Yeah, I think that, I think that there is a, a realization that, you know, you can't have too many eggs in one basket. And I think we are starting to see that de-risking on China now. We are seeing for next year and future years, you know, gradual steady pullback on the mix of cargo coming and sourcing out of China and, mm. and an ongoing growth and development, you know, in, in Southeast Asia markets. 
and uh, you know in, in some near shore markets and countries like india i think will continue to develop in in that direction um i think you know i think that's that that that, that that's a that's a key point um i think the second one is we've also seen some of our major customers out of frustration about the supply chain actually go out and procure assets themselves and try and do this container shipping side at least partly themselves and i think that they will recognize some of the challenges around that um, and, and some of the difficulties of matching off equipment flow and backhaul and head haul, et cetera, et cetera, in, in the future. So, so maybe going forward, you know, we will uh, maybe see a little bit less of the kind of do it yourself and going back more to using the liner carriers exclusively. But the liner carriers, including ourselves, have to make sure that we've got our portfolio of services in place to cover the existing markets and the future markets in terms of, of sourcing requirements. So that we have to maintain global coverage. We have to maintain good regional services. We have to maintain good hubs so that we can provide that predictability to our customers. So I do see uh, countries in Southeast Asia, West Asia gaining quite a lot from China over the next four or five years, but that's inevitable. Mm. I mean, uh, let's talk about that, that predictability of the future markets because uh, we've got, the five-year anniversary of, of One's inception coming up uh, early next year, April 2023. I mean, it's extraordinary to think you've only been around five years. You've had a, a roller coaster introduction to the market in, in, in some respects. What What's next for ONE in terms of how you, you deal with the next five years? Well, I think the, fir the first thing we have to do is to stabilize our products and, 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 and network. And I think that that will be, you know, that's, that's going to be a key focus over the next six to nine months and i think that the level of congestion is going to continue to go down but it's still going to be around in certain bottlenecks we've got to replace some of our tonnage which is not so efficient and and, and is relatively old with new tonnage which will be much more efficient and will have a much better carbon footprint so that that also helps to future proof us and put us on the right you know pathway to decarbonization and then we also have to, and we are working on behind the scenes, is trying to improve our customer service quality in terms of our interaction with our customers, the data, the information, um, the digital dashboards and information that we can give them to manage their business better and, and provide more certainty around what we're doing. So we're spending a lot of time and efforts enhancing our e-commerce offerings, in enhancing our uh, you know, land side operational capabilities, API, EDI, looking at more, you know, uh, system to system integration between our customers as well, so that mm. it's, it's, it's less less uh, manual. And uh, we'll keep pushing on, on, on with that inevitably. And then, of course, you know, back to decarb, moving towards the hallowed ground, which is how do we decarbonize and, and getting on with the bringing forward of the of the new fuel types and the applications, which still has many challenges ahead, but uh, we're on that journey. Well, let's talk about that, because you and I are both going to be out in New York next week at the Global Maritime Forum, where inevitably that is going to be the one question that everybody is grappling with. This is you know, where the leaders of the industry, I guess, get together on an annual basis and start thinking about those wider trends and decarbonisation and that energy shift is is central to pretty much every conversation that we're going to be having how do you feel the industry generally and ONE specifically is 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 on that journey where where are we because you know we've got those zero carbon fuels there in the distance we've got some decisions to be made but 
there is a slightly more boring and practical efficiency drive that needs to happen with CII, EEXI, the European trading scheme, all coming in from next year in varying degrees of intensity through to 2026. Now, that's going to require a, a mix of some fairly practical decision making, some new investments, some offloading. But how do you balance that against the longer term issue where we know that the ships that we're buying and building today probably aren't the ones that we need for 2050 and beyond? Yeah. So I think I think in the last 12 to 18 months, we've, we've raised the high level awareness that shipping is a hard to abate sector. It's 3% of greenhouse gases. Everybody's got that. I think now most people in shipping understand that we need to decarbonize. We do have different types of industry sectors. So the bulk sector, you're generally an owner or you're an operator. I think the unique thing about container shipping is we are the owner, the operator, and we're dealing with the end customer. And I think we've got more skin in the game to need to decarbonize faster and be managing our own assets. And so, you know, I have seen really good progress on that, I think, across the container shipping sector. Certainly the World Shipping Council, which I, I, I co-chair with Rolf and with John Butler and the team, you know, we're very focused now as a sector on coming across with a very clear pathway. We've identified six critical pathways, which we are, you know, really challenging the IMO now to help us on this journey. It's not a question of should we, we want to. We need, though, to standardize and we need, you know, common regulation. And the critical one now coming up is really MPC uh, 79 around mm. the greenhouse gas, particularly the market based measures. So, yes, you know, many of us are now investing in new ships, which are 20 to 30 percent more on CapEx, which will have an OPEX, which is three to four hundred percent higher using the new fuels of the future. But we need some leveling up. We need to make sure the landscape is leveled up longer term. So anybody who thinks that they can hold back and just use the old technology is going to get caught out as well. So we need these market based measures to start kicking in. And the MEPC, I think, is really critical in December that we come up with something which is practical and realistic, uh, is predictable, is universal, is understandable. And it's something we can pass through the supply chain. And if we can do that, I think we'll have the framework and the will and desire to really, really push on. If we don't, then we're going to see further stalling and difficulties and challenges in and around that. I think the other great development is, is again, in the last 12 months, is the development of these sustainability centres that have popped up, like in Copenhagen, mm. like in London, here in Singapore, with the Global Centre for Maritime Decarb, which we're a founding member of. And those are all about saying, look, cut the competition out about about uh, decarb. It, it, it's an industry collective. Let's do it together. Let's learn quickly, interchange ideas and accelerate on the R&D. And, you know, as we saw in the Ricardo study, there's 286 projects out there which need to be all closed off so that we have a clear pathway to decarb. And we need to knock off and get as many of those done as possible and do that collectively rather than leaving that to individual carriers and customers uh, to just try and, you know, invent the wheel themselves. I mean, there, there seems to be, as you say, this assumption that if we are going to see innovation and real change, we're going to see it first in containers, simply because the proximity of the customers and the owners are that much more engaged. But with the onset of uh, CII and the European trading scheme and others to come, those new regulatory frameworks require different conversations to be had between the owners and the charters, particularly when it comes to time charter. That is an interesting shift 
Do you think that beyond the larger question of zero carbon fuels and the technology, that the efficiency that we can get by doing things differently, operational efficiency, uh, not racing to wait for you know five days off off a port, they're the more immediate, tangible things that we can, as an industry, deal with. Most of the other stuff is about pricing, energy regulation, and uh, things that we have no control over. Is there enough progress being made on that immediate, pragmatic decision making? So I think that the, the most obvious one in the container shipping sector is simply just look at what we've achieved in the last 15 years in terms of reducing our carbon footprint. So this objective by the IMO, you know, to get to 40% reduced carbon intensity in 230 by 2008, I think you'll find most container shipping companies will pass that quite well. And of course, you know, we've been scaling up in terms of the size of our container ships. We've been adjusting the the, the, the actual technical components on board to make them more efficient. We've we've been looking at different speeds, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's going to go, you know, that's going to help us. But we now are really at that next critical junction, which is what do we build that is going to be future proof? And it, it, it's we've got certain carriers who, who've gone LNG and, and, and all respect and kudos to them with a view that they will then convert that into green LNG in the future. We've got other guys that are looking at uh, methanol and uh, developing that and, you know, really making pioneering efforts to to develop the ships and look at the up, ups, up, up uh, you know, the, the future fuel availability and procure that themselves. And so we've all got a, we've got our different ways of looking at it. We don't want any stranded assets. Our own view is that we still think it's it's not so clear on the exact pathway. So the latest mm. new builds we've got coming out now will come out of the yards burning fuel oil, but they'll be designed in a way where they can be retrofitted, hopefully four or five years later, to a, a, a much, much lower uh, carbon fuel type, whether it's ammonia, whether it's methanol, whether it's carbon capture. So we're designing into the ships that, that ability to retrofit them later and so maybe the first five years they'll have a high carbon footprint, but then that'll reduce over time as we put that new technology and those new green fuels come along. So I think you know different ideas from from different people. We're all trying different concepts, but at some point the industry does need to start to come down to two or three solutions, and inevitably mm. maybe only one or two solutions. So we get that critical mass, we get that shipbuilding efficiency, the bunkering, and all the fuel management side. Uh, you know, efficiencies and economies of scale rather than being highly diffracted. Mm. Point taken. And I think you're, you're right. We have to have those fundamental decisions in terms of the fuel availability to come. But in the meantime, is there enough attention being paid to the incremental efficiencies that we know can be made? And I'm thinking about, you know, coatings and Muris ducts and Nevis ducts and boss caps and all of those obvious things. Why is it that any ship owner dry docking or building today is not installing those relatively low cost, um, quick return efficiency savings? Because the reality is there are efficiencies that could be applied to the existing fleet that are not being made today. And it feels a little bit like the industry is waiting for some big bang to come. So, so the, the the energy costs and obviously the carbon footprint for for shipping is still very much around fuel oil, mm. and uh, you know in the carbon in the container shipping sector, you know we're the owner of the operators. We said we are we're operating the ship, but we're also paying the bunker bill, 
And so, you know, container shipping, I think, is very, very focused and has been very, very focused on reducing its fuel bill and uh, trying to reduce the number of tons. And I'm sure we are, like many other companies, we're, we're doing it. You know, we measure by vessel the fuel consumption all the time and we're continuously trying to optimize that and we are putting vessels into dry dock and we are changing you know the the, the bulbous bowels and the engines and the rudders and looking at new paint systems on board and changing you know the boilers on board so that they operate at a slightly different temperature and blah 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 so I think I think a lot of that is going on. Maybe maybe in some of the other sectors where you know the the owner owns the asset and somebody else is paying the bunker bill, it's maybe slightly a different different equation or economics. But uh, I think container shipping we're pretty focused on that and and continuing to do a lot of that uh, as we can. You know, with with the fireworks going off in the markets in containers, uh, the backdrop of decarbonisation, a war, and various other things. Things like safety, things like crewing that otherwise would have been keeping us engaged in in fairly consistent conversations in the industry seem to have been overlooked. The combination of things that have happened on top of the crewing crisis post-pandemic have obviously had a fairly significant impact around issues of crewing. We're returning to some semblance of normality now, but how do you think the industry is dealing with that issue of uh, retention of crew, training of crew, getting the right people in the right places, both onshore and at sea, for an industry that is going through some fairly seismic transitions over the next few years. Yeah, indeed, Richard. I mean, it's, exactly. And and I think that, you know, in terms of the, the physical safety of the ships, uh, their ability to manoeuvre, to minimise the risk of collisions, the handling of weather systems, etc., like that, I think, you know, we've seen an an ongoing improvement in terms of the technology applications, you know, great assistance from the builders, great assistance from the classification societies. Uh, we've seen a lot of, you know, new technology coming onto the bridge wing to help with managing the vessels, etc. So, so I think that's that's encouraging and continue to go in the right direction. And uh, that's an improvement. I think the area that is a ongoing concern is, is is cargo fires. So mm. we can build the ships as efficiently as we can. We can navigate them as efficiently as we can. We can try to avoid bad weather as, as best we can. But we have this, often this risk on board, which we, we what is in the box? Is, is it really what's inside the box? And has it really been stowed and packed correctly? And as you know, we've had some pretty spectacular accidents in our industry over the years. And uh, the ships are only getting larger and they're getting more difficult to manage in the event of us having a major catastrophic incident. So mm. I would say that, um, you know, safety security is is really critical in terms of the cargo handling and, and uh, hazardous cargo in particular. And of course, as we talk about these new fuel types coming with decarbonisation, you know, LNG, ammonia, methanol, you know, that we put the ships at even potentially more risk if if we're having uh, to deal with cargo fires as well on the vessel. So I believe the industry has to take a very, very strong approach to cargo safety. And we need, you know, we need governments to do more. We need the, you know, to do more, but we cannot just rely on that. And, and we need to do more and continue to do more as an industry. And because of our consortium model where we're often loading on each other's vessels, um, you know, we make one mistake and, you know, we, 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 we could impact the whole supply chain. So 
I think this area of of uh, is going to push on, and certainly on the, the World Shipping Council, we have a, a safety and security council, and they are starting to make really strong progress around cargo screening solutions, potentially common cargo system, using machine learning, using AI to, to, to give us quicker, faster intel in and around what's being booked and what's being supposedly processed in terms of a booking. And then saying, you know, red flag, watch out, this, this could be a problem. And then we can get in there and talk to the customer or, or do some inspection to check. But mm. the, the, the future of, 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 of big fires on container ships and cargo fires remains a significant risk for our industry and particularly for our crew and officers on board. And we have to be so vigilant on this and continue to work on this and find, find a good solution. And that is where we will leave it for this week. As you heard there, I will be out with Jeremy in New York at the Global Maritime Forum next week. And of course, for the insurance listeners amongst you, we have our risk man, David Osler, out in Chicago at Diumi. So you can expect to hear quite a bit more from those discussions in the weeks to come. For now, though, my thanks to Jeremy for talking to me and to you for listening. I'll be back next week. 